I get the privilege this morning of introducing our speaker. This will be the last guest speaker that we have through the fall. We mentioned this last week, uh, but Russ, one of our pastors who's been on sabbatical for the fall, actually comes back next weekend. We're incredibly excited to have him back. We've had a ton of people from uh, both from within our community and outside of our community coming in to help uh, with our teaching, and this is our last guest teacher this morning. You know this individual. You love this individual. He's been a, uh, a part of our elder team since 2015. Not only is he the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Whitworth University, but he is the dean of our hearts, John Pell. <laughs> uh, morning, church. Uh, in a second, my, uh, my good friends uh, Aaron and Wendy Putsky are going to read scripture for us. Um, there's no slides today, um, and in part because I, I want this to be a time where your imagination is sort of free to roam. Um, I'm, I'm nervous because I, uh, I feel like the Lord's been speaking to me sort of over the last few months when I knew I was going to be talking towards the, um, during this time. And so I, I, I tend to be more nervous when I think I actually have something to say. Um, I get paid to talk a lot, and so most of the time it's just kind of like just flippant, and it usually works out. Um, uh, but today I feel like there's something that's sort of been uh, resonating, and, and I hope it resonates with you. Um, it seems to me that over the last few months, a lot of my conversations with folks are some version of, particularly when it comes to talking about faith, uh, what are we doing? Like, what's going on? Um, it doesn't feel like all the things that used to bring me peace bring me peace anymore. Um, and then we respond in different ways to those sorts of things, right? When things seem out of balance, we often respond in different sorts of ways. And so the way the Lord often speaks to me is, um, it's almost like, does anyone remember that show, Murder, She Wrote? Do you guys remember the show? Pretty new. I think it's pretty new. Um, <laughs> and the opening of that show, there was a typewriter, and it like clicked out the words. Uh, and often that's how God talks to me, is that this sentence gets formed over a period of time. Um, and it's in different moments, like getting ready for work, or driving to work, or playing with my kids. A word will sort of, sort of pop into my head, and eventually the sentence gets sort of filled out. And, and the sentence that has been resonating with me for the last few months is simply this. And maybe it's not simple, I don't know, but it's this. We have been here before in this space between apathy and war. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Mark chapter 11, 15 through 17. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold 
and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Mark chapter 7, 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all, food, all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we, um, <laughs> I didn't think about the fact that this was going to be right before Thanksgiving, and so I, I actually really am enjoying the idea of like, many of you are going, what is he getting ready to talk about? <laughs> and I'm like, this is why you don't have green bean casserole, Mike drop, leave. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, that's not really what we're talking about. But I wanted to get, <laughs> I want us to sort of, sort of start with some of these other passages, and then we're going to work our way through that longer passage in Mark about sort of what defiles us, what goes in, and what, what do we release. Um, and oftentimes we, we kind of misunderstand these um, passages in the New Testament about purity laws or food culture, um, in part, I think, because we sort of try to, we make the ancient world into this really sort of like comical representation where there's like these bad guys that are just walking around and waiting to slap people on their hands and um, and so we kind of miss a lot of the nuance of what's going on here. Um, but, but food laws and purity laws aren't that different than some of the practices that we hold or the practices that we engage in as a way of signifying me meaningful experiences in our life. And so maybe one way to kind of get around this idea is to focus on this section in Mark's uh, gospel where uh, the Pharisees have watched the disciples come in for the day and they're getting ready to share a meal. And they do so without the ceremonial cleansing of the dishes or of their hands. And this leads uh, the Pharisees to comment, why do your disciples not walk 
according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And it's this phrase, the tradition of the elders, that I think is really important for us to maybe understand um, why Jesus says what he does. And so according to the scriptures, the Jewish people were intended to be set apart from the rest of the world, right? Yahweh calls them to himself, and they are called to be a people of jubilee, that is, a people that forgive debts. And they are to be a people of extravagant welcome. You bring in the widow and the orphan and the stranger, and they are to, to be a people devoted to the commandments of Yahweh, which Jesus reminds are summarized in the very simple phrase, to love neighbor as self. And so these beliefs and values were intended to set them apart from the rest of the world uh, because the care that their community would show would stand in such stark contrast to the sort of hard scrabble, dog-eat-dog world of the ancient Near East, that they would be a different kind of people. And so the food laws and these purity practices, they became traditions, ways to remind the people of these deeper beliefs. You wash the plates in this way, or you abstain from these things, not because of those things in themselves, but because they are ways of directing your mind back to these deeper beliefs, these more holy practices. But unfortunately, as people are wont to do, over time, the traditions of the elders no longer served as reminders of these deeper truths, right? They became the thing unto themselves. So following the law, consuming or not consuming particular food, keeping the Sabbath in a particular way, adhering to a form of purity culture, these became the evidence of your devotion and fidelity to the faith. Or as one theologian and historian puts it, the strict adherence to the law became the only thing that set them apart. And so Jesus grows up in this tradition. He grows up with all of these practices that are on the surface, supposed to point to something deeper, but often are hollowed out. They become rules, things that we are sort of abide by because we don't want the sort of weight of others' glances as we do things that they question. And so he stands up and he says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into them can defile them, but the things that come out of a person are what defile them. Later then, when the disciples have followed Jesus um, into a home, away from the crowd, they ask him to explain the parable to them, to explain this sort of cryptic saying. And it's this part of the story, this sort of asking for an explanation, that I think maybe has particular resonance for this rem remnant of the kingdom that we call New Community, this community that many of us have called home for a long time, this place that many of us are now starting to think might be a home. The disciples, like many of us, are asking this really deep, heartfelt question. They grew up in a world where there were laws and practices. And if you followed those and you did them correctly, it was an indication of your fidelity to Yahweh. And if you get rid of those traditions, then what's left? And if you get rid of those practices, what do you believe? And if we get rid of one thing, don't we have to replace it with something else? Some visible act that sets us apart? 
And I don't want to minimize the disciples' questions. I think sometimes they get sort of portrayed as these like bumbling buffoons, right? But they're just people like us who go to work, who do things, who are trying to make sense of the world they live in. And they're asking this really important question. They grew up like so many of us with all of these traditions. They were taught a series of practices and habits. And Jesus comes in and he starts to push on them. And it seems as though they are void of any deeper truth. They don't seem to point us back to anything. And so the disciples, like many of you, are deconstructing their faith, trying to figure out what does any of this stuff mean. And I think it's important to pause here for a moment and kind of explore this idea, because what we don't want to do as people is ironically proceed in precisely the same fashion that led us to deconstruct our faith and that process is the same thing that led us to construct our faith in the first place, right? So this complicated idea of we don't simply want to replace one set of practices, beliefs, values, statements, ideas with another set of beliefs, values, statements, ideas that also don't point to anything else. So this term deconstruction comes from literary theory, um, which I happen to be a fan of. And... Um, at its most basic sort of definition, it means <laughs> uh, at its most basic definition, it means a thing without a center. Or perhaps another way of saying this is deconstruction understands that ideas and beliefs have nothing holding them together. And this is a, this is an important. This is like one of my hobby horses. Greg somewhere is grinning because he knows this about me. People don't deconstruct things. That is not what the word means. It's actually more profound than that. Deconstruction is a quality of ideas. They fall apart. There's nothing there. There's no deeper structure. There's no deeper purpose or meaning holding anything together. There is no there there. And this idea has been with us for a long time. It's in the lament of Macbeth upon hearing the passing of his wife. The world is filled with sound and fury, signifying nothing. Or perhaps an even more ancient voice, the poets in Ecclesiastes write, I have seen all things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And I think many of us are in that place, trying to figure out, is there anything real or deeper? Is there any reason for me to continue claiming allegiance to this Jesus? And I can only speak for myself, but when confronted with these profound questions, my limbic system takes over and I find myself in either fight or flight mode. So like the disciples in Mark's uh, gospel, I think when I'm too overwhelmed or too uncertain, this is when I get into that flight mode and I just want to run away. And it becomes an almost apathetic response, this overwhelming sense that I don't have any sufficient answers, and so I might as well just give up on the whole project rather than trying to find new traditions or to redeem things, um, redeem current practices and make them sacred, I give up on the whole thing. I throw my hands up in the air and I tend to say, well, if nothing's going to work, then nothing's going to work. And I think this is where the disciples are in this uh, story when they're asking Jesus to explain his saying. If nothing is good enough, then what's the point? all these food laws, this suffocating purity culture, if they're all a sham, then maybe every practice is a sham, and maybe we'll just never get it. 
And Jesus responds to their question, to their, their fear, and he says, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters not their heart but their stomach? What comes out of a person is what defiles them. In other words, the deeper thing is not the practice, but what the practice points to. How do you take the things of life and make them sacred and beautiful? The evidence of how you might go about loving others. The thing that comes from your heart. There's another way to respond, though, when we're overwhelmed by fear, and that is to fight. And this is one way to understand Jesus' encounter with the money changers in the temple. Um, as N.T. Wright notes, when Jesus knocks over the table calling out, you have made my house a den of thieves, this word thieves in its regular usage is often the word for rebels or revolutionaries or those who have come to make war. And so Wright states that Jesus' anger here is not simply that it's like some sort of like, you know, uh, garage sale or something like this, but instead there's this group of nationalists who have taken up shop inside of the king's home and are raising money for war, to revolt against Rome, to burn everything down. And Jesus says, how can my house be a place of prayer for everyone if you want to kill certain people? For some... Our responses to losing the significance of our traditions is to fight back. It's to try to eliminate those elements of culture or silence those voices that throw our long-held beliefs into doubt. Or perhaps we fancy ourselves as some kind of new prophet. And we're going to burn the whole thing down because we have decided that we truly know the right way to go. It's evidenced in our use of capitals on Twitter. Look how passionate we are. In either case, this fight response often leads to what Nadia Bowles-Weber calls the cult of innocence. We imagine ourselves as the protector of the innocent, fighting against an evil villain in the world, and this allows us to remain in this sort of naive place of being innocent ourselves. We are not complicit in the world because we do or say the right kinds of things. Such a response brings little peace, though. Instead, we move from one battle to the next, from one cause to cause, often overlooking the fact that we have replaced old litmus test with new litmus test, and we're no further away from this problem of the traditions of elders than when we began. And I think this is where we find the disciples at the end of John's Gospel. Like many of us, they are in between this space of apathy and of war, between letting it all go and burning it all down. And they're trying to make sense of their experiences with Jesus in order to move forward, but they are feeling lost and despondent. But like you all, like me, they have jobs. So they wake up, go to work, try to get by, try to make sense of things, hoping that maybe tomorrow things will make more sense, or maybe the next day. 
And then one day, they see a familiar face and they hear a familiar voice. Come, have breakfast. So this is the part where you need to close your eyes for a second. We read these four pieces of scripture. And movies do this better sometimes than books do, or at least ancient texts. Um, This sort of flashback moments, right? Where all the pieces of the puzzle start to come together, right? So there's this moment. They get out of the boats, and there's this man that they remember with a familiar voice that says, come, eat breakfast. There's this flashback to this moment when they are in the upper room, and there is this incredible moment where Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This thing that will go into you, this thing that you will consume, and what will come out of it. And then there's a flashback to yet another moment. They're leaning back, relaxing, enjoying a warm breeze and a meal, and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then we're back to the present, and they're eating this meal, and they finish, and Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, will you feed my sheep? Will you feed my sheep? And all of this stuff is moving through their minds at once, and what they're starting to put together is that what enters into us cannot defile us, but what comes out of us can. And so what does Jesus do? He breaks bread, and he gives wine, and he says, take into yourself me. Take into yourself me, and let all of your good traditions begin with this. Will you feed my sheep from what I give? What comes out of you? From what I give to you, what comes out? Feed my sheep. Whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, whatever is loving, wherever there is care for someone else, do this in remembrance of me. This is the thing that has always been the thing. And he simplifies it, right? He tears everything down. And he says, here is the thing, the one tradition, the one thing that matters. From me to you or others. From me to you for others. It's all of the traditions, all of the practices have to point back to that one. So they're sitting there and starting to make sense to them. This uncertainty, the deconstructing, all of it is starting to make sense to the disciples. And then, flash forward, about 2,000 years to the fall in Spokane, and a group of weary disciples who maybe have felt like their faith life is on hold, who wake up and go to work every day trying to figure out what anything means. Their pastor happens to go on sabbatical, so we have this crazy idea that we should have everybody just talk to each other for a few months and see what comes out of our community. And pretty soon what we start to notice is that that group of folks is doing the same exact thing that they were doing all those millennia ago on a beach eating fish, answering this question, who do you say that I am? 
And for the last three months, we got to hear from all of these amazing people in all of their unique and beautiful and crazy ways. Who do you say that I am? And we've been here before. Maybe not us. This might be the first time some of us are really wrestling with these challenges of trying to make sense of everything. And it's scary and painful and it's not fun. But we, this family of people that have followed after the Christ for millennia, have been here before. And we're going to be here again. I think it's great that the worship songs today were about this idea of finding rest. Because this is the place that we're in, it's really uncomfortable. Because we want to know the way forward. We want to know what we're supposed to be doing. And sometimes you just can't know. You have to wait. You have to sit in the uncertainty. You have to sit in the space between giving it all up and burning it all down. And we don't give a lot of credit to that because it doesn't seem like movement. But holding fast to things is hard. Anybody ever loved anybody? Holding fast to things is hard. Right? So we're in the spot where we have to uh, think about what is next? What is next? What does it look like for the church? What does it look like for this community going forward? And it's awesome that next week happens to be Advent. The beginning of Advent season, this period of waiting and expectation. Because I think, I think that's where lots of us are at. Because we're waiting for this next thing. And it's a hard place to be in. But we've been here before. And the funny thing about this story, these stories, our story, is that it always ends the same way. Jesus leaning back after a meal with his friends, twinkle in his eye, this knowing and courageous smile. Follow me. Follow me. Let me pray for us. New community, may you dig deep into the coming Advent season. May you ask good, hard questions. Challenge your assumptions. Wrestle with your traditions. And remember that it's the heart that matters most. Take comfort. This season of waiting, of wrestling, of losing and gaining, of laughing and crying, of leaving and finding, of growing and pruning, this too will pass. And when we are able to drop the weight 
of traditions that no longer point us towards the one who first fed us. And when we allow our certainty to give way to wonder again, when we get back to the point of it all, this is often when we hear it, or when we see it, or when we feel it. Follow 